2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 22 is where I'm going to read. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places I have moved with all people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the tongues of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over all my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away from you from before for you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your, show, your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord, that you have spoken also to your servant's house for a great while to come. And there is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. And according to all that we have heard with our ears. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and fallible word. The grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. You don't stand forever. God's Word does. Well, um, I had an experience that um, we've, the other day that I think we've often experienced, and many of you probably had. I was sitting at a traffic light, and the light turned green. And I was the second car, but the car in front of me didn't go. And I waited, and it didn't go. It turned green, and the car remained unmoved. It turned green. You guys, is your pulse quickening at this experience? You know what this is like? This is such a common experience in the American suburban life that we can all relate with it, can't we? Here's, here's a one, how one writer describes our experience of this. He says this, this is how we experience this, this experience in our, in our life. He said, the light is red. It changes. The vehicle in front of you remains unmoved. 
This, however, causes you little concern since from long experience you have discovered many motorists are not as poised to go at the crack of green as you are. With some, it takes as long as three seconds for the sight of color to enter their cranial transmission center, dash over the prescribed circuits, and reach feet that release brakes and tramp the accelerator. But should the lapse last six seconds or seven seconds, you become worried, even agitated. You rue blowing your horn lest you be thought impatient, but love for the fellow motorist behind you compels you so to stir the slumbering motorist in front of you. For you think it is absurd to not be moved by a green light. We might ask, and this is quite the turn, we might ask that that same question about us in regards to God. Are you moved by God anymore? Are you brought to wonder at your God? What we see at the very end of this text, I read in verses 18 through 22, David, in response to something, worships to God. And it is one of those um, worship songs, those prayers up to the Lord that you may have prayed before at one time in your life where you can just hear the wonder in David's prayer. Who am I, O Lord, that you would consider me? And there is not, no one above you. There is no words to communicate how great you are. What is it that moves David to this aspect of worship? What is it that moves him to the point of awe in his worship of God? Well, what moves David, and what we see in the first 17 verses of this text, what moves him is a covenant. A covenant. And what I want you to see this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is the emotional center of the Davidic story in the Bible. This is the key moment in all of David's life. And it is one of the most fundamentally important passages in all of Scripture if you're going to understand the biblical story. This passage has become called one of the most important passages in all the Old Testament. Some scholars even say this is the hub of the Old Testament. You know what a hub is? The Atlanta airport is a hub, right, for Delta. Actually, it's the hub of of almost anybody in the South, right? You can't get anywhere in the South without flying through Atlanta. You can't get anywhere in the Bible unless you stop in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is a hub of understanding the biblical story. Because you can't even understand the story of Jesus. And you cannot understand the minor and the major prophets unless you understand this covenant and what God is communicating to David here. And perhaps, perhaps if we come to understand what's going on here, perhaps like David, we will be moved to wonder. To wonder once again and to worship our God. So what can move you? What kind of covenant and what kind of covenant God could move you to wonder and awe at your God once again? Three things I want to say about this this morning, about your covenant God. The first thing that would move you to awe and wonder is this, is seeing the character of your covenant God. To see the character of your covenant God. God is making a covenant with David. Now, if you know anything about covenants in the Bible, it's actually, it is the, the spine of the Bible. Someone could actually describe it this way, because there's been debates over the years. As to who, what is the Bible about? Is the Bible ultimately about God, or is it about us and what we do? And the answer is yes. Yes. It is about God, and it is about how we respond to God. And the playing field in which God and His people play together. 
and interact in which you come to know God and you learn about how you should live is in the context of covenant. It is the field in which you play. It is the sweet meadow in the forest in which you walk with God is the covenant. God makes a covenant with Adam. He makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with the people of Israel. He makes a covenant with David. In Jeremiah 31, it says when Jesus comes, that will be the new covenant. It is how is God relating to his people and how do we relate to our gods? And what we see first and foremost is the character of our covenant God. And here's the context. David, in his, the Davidic story, is at this time in his life, this is a good moment for David. I mean, he is finally sitting on the throne. He ain't traipsing around the wilderness no more. He, there is not a civil war. Life is good. The ark has come into the, into the town of Jerusalem, into the city of Jerusalem. He has established himself as king. He's not in the midst of wars. He has defeated all the surrounding nations and enemies. And he is hanging out one day with his pastor, a guy named Nathan. And David has a nice, sweet house. And he looks at Nathan and he says this, You know what? It's, I, it's, it's a shame that I live in this great house and God is still living in a moldy tent. I mean, that tent is really old by now. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. And he says, you know, what should, we sh- what should I do, Nathan? I, should I build God a sanctuary? And Nathan, like any good pastor, says, without go, oh, passing go, says, oh, absolutely. We don't have to pray about it, right? If, if you come to your pastor and say, hey, would you like me to build you a sanctuary for God? And I'm, I might respond to you, say, I might, I'm, I'm probably not going to say, hey, we should pray about this for a little bit. I probably won't even say, hey, you should go home and talk to your wife about it. I just say, go ahead and do it. And that's what Nathan does here. Nathan says, go for it. Do it. That sounds like a great idea. And yet God has a different idea in mind. God comes to Nathan that night, and he comes to Nathan, and he pulls the permit on the building. He says, Nathan, uh-uh, you've got to go back to David and say, I don't want this built. And here's what he says in verses 5 through 7. We'll pick it up and read it again. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Do you see what God is saying here to Nathan and to David through Nathan? He says, I have not lived in a house I have not needed a house. I have been with my people, and in fact, I have not even asked for a house. Have you heard me ask for a house? All those judges, they came and go in. Now I never told them to ask to come to you and say, I need a house. God says, I don't have a house, and here's why. Because I will reside where my people reside. And as they reside, I will reside as they. Therefore, if they are moving around in tents, I will so badly want to be with my people, then I will move around in a tent with them. If they are unsettled and they are in the midst of wars and they are not able to settle into their lands here in the promised land, then neither shall I be settled. I want to be as you are. Do you see how profound what God is saying and the character of this covenant God is he is introducing his covenant to David? He's saying this. I want you to understand who I am. What a beautiful picture of the condescending love of God. That God would say, I don't need a temple. This tent... That's all I need. Because what I want more than anything else is just to be with you. I am, God sees himself so closely aligned with his people that if they don't have something, then he says, I will go without it as well. It is an incredible miracle of God's grace that he would choose to dwell with his people. He would come to live in their midst. It is beyond imagination that the Lord of glory would be content to live in a tent. A tent. 
It's not even a house. Well, you can see that character throughout the Bible. This is the character of our God. We see it in the incarnation of, our, of Jesus. When Jesus comes, is Jesus a rich man who lives in a palace? Does Jesus go and reside in the temple, in the Holy of Holies? No, what does he do? He walks among the people. In Matthew 8, 20, it says this. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds, have air, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Because he has come to serve, not to be served. And it says this in Paul's theological dis, uh, dissertation on Jesus and his humility. It says that Jesus laid aside, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is the character of our God. To come to experience what you experienced, to live the life that you've lived, to walk into the sorrows that you have walked. Jesus was willing, literally, to become homeless for your sake. To be homeless and so that you might be redeemed. In Jesus, we have a God who comes and lives in the mess of his people and with his people. We don't see it often. But it's, we don't see it often. But when we see a, love, a condescension of love like this, a humble love like this, we stand up and cheer. You know, there was, there was somebody who went and gave a speech before Harvard a number of years back. And in fact, this person got a five-minute standing ovation before they even spoke. That person was Mother Teresa. Because in a world in which we are so cynical, in which we don't see uh, displays of love, particularly love in which we condescend and come alongside people, they found in this person someone who had actually done that. You know in Mother Teresa's ministry, she served in India far before she became famous. But when her ministry began to take off, was actually she had lived in a convent and went and go, did work amongst the impoverished people. But when her ministry took off, was in 1948 when she made this determination, she moved out from the convent and moved into the slums with the people. The condescension of love. That God would go with us. That God would say, I go with you. This is the kind of king that we have. God calls David the prince. He says, I'm the king. I'm the covenant king. And this is my character. Where you go, I will go. What you experience, I will experience. Some of you know the movie, um, We Were Soldiers, or some of you may have even read the book, We Were Soldiers. It's about the account of Hal Moore, who was a colonel in the United States military and during the Vietnam War, and he and his troops were part of the Air Cavalry, and they fought in one of the early um, significant battles of Vietnam, and he and 400 of his men landed into a hot landing zone. And the issue is they had to be brought in on helicopters, and so only 50 or 60 of them could come in at one time, which meant this, that the first 50 guys there were utterly and absolutely exposed until they could bring in reinforcements. And how more is famous for saying this that when we go into battle, I will be the first one to set foot on the field, and I will be the last one to step off, and I will leave no one behind, dead or alive. We will come home together, so help me, God. That is the attitude of your God. That I will step out in front of you. The good leader, the good king, the true God, the character of this covenant God is with his people. He experiences their sorrows, he feels their pain, he does not remain on a mountaintop. As like some guru, he comes down and experiences life as we've lived it. This is our God. This is our God. Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn was the speaker of the house for over um, uh, for many many years. He was the, served in the house for forty nine years and was the the longest tenured speaker of the house in United States history. He was essentially the FDR of of Congress. He served the same time as FDR. He heard one day that one of the men who was a reporter who followed him around and also often met with uh, Mr. Rayburn, he, he found out that this reporter's teenage daughter had died suddenly. 
And so in his, in his hurt for this man, the next morning he went to this reporter's house and he rapped on the door and the reporter was stunned to find that Sam Raber was standing there. And Sam Raber said this, I just came by to see what I could do to help. And the reporter was sitting there, was stuttering and trying to recover from the surprise of seeing this great man in front of him and indicated that there was nothing the speaker could do, that all the funeral arrangements were coming together. And the speaker said, well, he's asked this, well, have you had your morning coffee yet? The man said, well, no. He said this, well, let me come make coffee for you and I will sit with you. Now, as amazing as that is, that he would come to spend time, to come into the, the midst of that man's sorrow on that morning and make, do the simple task of making coffee for him and sitting with him on that day of days when you wake up the day after your daughter has died. But then the reporter was, was even more stunned as he remembered this, that on that day of the week, Sam Rayburn had a standing breakfast appointment with the President of the United States. And he said, Mr. Speaker, you're supposed to be with the President. And he said, I called the President and I told him I have a friend to be with. That's the heart of your God. The character of your God will come, and all that pales in, compl- in, 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 in comparison to the condescension of our God. God will tend to get a temple. God will get a temple. You know how long God's in the temple? Not long. It doesn't go well. The temple of Israel, they build this beautiful temple under Solomon, and God's there, and he resides with the people, but he eventually it leaves the temple. He moves out of the temple, up to the Mount of Olives. The people of Israel are taken into exile, but we find this, that God is okay with that because he says, I will come and I will temple, I will dwell. And you know where God temples and dwells now? You looked at it in the mirror this morning. The fat, flabby, exhausted, bloodshot, skin-wrinkling body that you hold, that is where God dwells. A tent that is moldy and old. And yet God says, I will condescend. That is the kind of covenant partner you have. The character of your God. If you're going to come to awe and worship, you have to come to that realization that God would come to condescend to live not just with you, but in you. Second, you need to understand, if you're going to come to awe and wonder at your covenant God, and worship like David, you need to see the dynamic of your covenant relationship with him. The dynamic. This is kind of a psychological term, dynamic. We, we talk about relational dynamics. You know what we mean by that? It refers to the pattern of interaction. It's kind of the, 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 the organic means of how the, the, or the relationship is supposed to run between two parties. And God comes to David and he makes clear the relational dynamic between them. Look at verse 8 and verse 9, the first half of verse 9. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now understand the context of what is going on here and what God is saying in the midst of that context. I want you to see that David is actually in a dangerous place. That David is in a dangerous place of shifting the dynamic in his relationship with God. And the danger that is causing that shift in dynamic is a place called success. A place called success. Success can be the ruin of men. In which they can begin to see themselves as God not doing much for them, but them doing much for God. Eugene Peterson, a commentator on this text, says this. He says, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of Israel. He was heavy with success, and he began to think that he could do God a favor. Now, where do we get that in the text? 
Well, we get it actually from the historical context. If you were to travel the world and visit the great buildings of the world and the the ancient buildings of the world, you'll travel two kinds of buildings. Castles, and what's the others? Temples. The great wonders of the world are when kings build temples to their gods. The pharaohs of Egypt, the pyramids, temples to their gods. The temple of Amon-Re by Tutmos, the pharaoh. He says, here is your glory. The pyramids, the Machu Picchu is a temple to their gods. The uh, Angkor Wat in Cambodia is a temple to their gods. And here's the dynamic and what it shows about every religion, what they're doing. Because you'll see an inscription somewhere on most of these temples. Somewhere within them or without them. It'll say something along these lines. They'll say, I have blessed you, God. I have built this great temple for you, and now bless me. Now bless me. And that is the dynamic of every other religion of the world, is you earn it. And that David is at a place in the midst of his success in which he is saying, I'm going to be like all the other kings of the world. I'm going to be like the great kings, and I will build God one of the seven wonders of the world, a temple to show him how great I am, and to bless him in the hopes that he will then bless me. Christianity says this, you don't bless God, he blesses you. You don't earn it, he gives it to you. Here's, and it is here that when you come to a place of success where you think that it is your job ultimately to bless God first, as opposed to him blessing you, that the ruin can often happen. Eugene Peterson goes on in his commentary to say it like this. He said, David continues to develop along these lines, he moves towards ruin. For if any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own actions and performance, this is the path to ruin. That David is in danger of shifting and forgetting the relational dynamic. That the dynamic of his relationship with God is one of what? Pure and unadulterated grace. C.S. Lewis in a radio broadcast was asked one time, what is the difference between Christianity and every other religion? And C.S. Lewis said, I can be described very easily with one word, grace. Grace. God in his grace, what does he do here in verses 8 and 9? What does he remind David of? He says two things to him. David, remember where you were when I found you. You were following sheep around the wilderness. You were nothing. You were the youngest of the brothers. Know who followed sheep around? Shepherds. They were the lowest of the low of society. And yet God says, reminds him, David, you weren't that hot stuff. And I'm the one who's given you all these things. And it reminds him along the way, hey, were you the one who was the one who brought about all those successes with your military victories? No, 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 no. Remember, that was me who brought those successes around. That was me. All the victories came because I gave you success. My relational dynamic with you, David, is one of grace. Therefore, what's the punchline? You don't build a house for me. I will build a house for you. I will build a house for you. And what he's saying by that is, he's not, David already has a house. What is he saying? He's saying, I will build you a dynasty. That I will make your name great, as we're going to see in the covenants. God says, every other religion of the work works on this principle. That if you will do something for me, then I'll bless you. But God says, in my religion, and the character of my covenant with you, it works this way. I bless you. I bless you. It is my grace. You don't build a house for me. I build a house for you. It is utterly different. You have to remember the wonder and awe of your relational dynamic. You're just not that great. But he is. 
And it's His grace that is the core of that relational dynamic. The third, and we've left some time to deal with this because it is the most lengthy and the most complex of the points this morning. The third, if you're going to come to wonder and awe of this covenant God, is you have to come to see the tension of the covenant promises. So you've got to see the character of your God. You've got to be restored to the relational dynamic. And then lastly, you've got to see the tension of the covenant promises. What is the main thing you see in the first 15 or 16 verses of this text? The main active verb. God is the main subject of this text. God acts in the covenant. God is the subject, he is the main subject of 23 verbs in this text. I will, I will, I will, I do it, I do it, I will. God acts. And real quick, what it, it's about what this is the covenant is about what God does. And real quick, I'm going to go over the promises here in verses 9 through 15. He gives the promises that your name is going to become great. But here's the core of what he says that David, even, you're going to, even when you're going to die, your kingdom and your dynasty and your house is going to go on. Death will not stop your family. Nor will sin, we see in verses 14 and 15. Hey, the kings that are going to follow you, they're going to sin against me and I'm going to discipline them, but my steadfast love will endure. And the last thing in the high point of it is verse 16, the climax is this, that your kingdom and your throne will be established forever. Now, how long is forever? Kids, forever is forever. It is right when you're saying, I have this to infinity. That's how long forever is. Now, here we come in this promise, smack dab into one of the the critical tensions of the Bible, of the whole Bible and the whole Old Testament. It is the tension that asks this question. When God comes into relationship with us and when he makes covenant with us, is that covenant and all its blessings, is it conditional or is it unconditional? David, I'm going to give you these things, but is it conditional on David doing rightly and all the kings on David's line doing rightly? Well, on one hand, you look at this text and you go, how many obligations are asked of David for this? Zero. Zero obligations. But on the other hand, it becomes clear as the Old Testament works its way out, and as people point back to the Davidic covenant, we see that there was an implied ifs. You know what those ifs are? It's called the law of God that you find in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In fact, one scholar has pointed out that there are 1,648 ifs in the Old Testament. 1,648 ifs. Those are the conditions that if you do this, then this. If you do this, then this. Let me give you just a couple examples of this. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, when God comes, and in Exodus chapter 19 is right before Exodus chapter 20, what happens in Exodus chapter 20? God gives the Ten Commandments, the law, the moral law. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he says this, he has brought the people out of Egypt and about to give them the Ten Commandments, and he says this, if you will obey my voice, then you will be my people. If you obey my voice. And you think, well, maybe that's just an Old Testament thing. No, 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 no. It's a New Testament thing. You might remember this in John chapter 15. Jesus says this, if you are, you are my friends, if you do what I command you. What do we do with the ifs? This sounds like God's love and God's steadfastness to the covenant is conditioned upon our activity. You say to me, you look, look, okay, I, I hear all the ifs, and I read the ifs, 
and I look at you, and I, and I want to say, Andrew, I thought this was grace, and I thought God does it all in the gospel, and, and it's all about, but what, I look at these ifs, and I wonder, really, I think there's something for me to do here. Now, the tension of the ifs is further given tension as the Old Testament moves along, because we see that God interacts with the kings of Israel in light of the ifs. There are discipline that God brings into their life because they do not follow his law. For example, it doesn't take very long. What happens to Solomon? Well, who is the fulfillment of this prophecy? Your name will be great. It's, it's partially Solomon. What we're going to see here is this, this prophecy is, is partially, this covenant is partially fulfilled in Solomon. That he is the one who will be disciplined for his sins. But God will be steadfast in love to him. It will be ultimately, we'll see in Jesus. But first we're going to see it in Solomon. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11, it says this. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, speaking about him taking up a thousand wives. That's a no bueno, in case you were wondering. A thousand wives, no good. Okay? Solomon takes a thousand wives. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and you and will give it to your servants. Wait a second. What about the Davidic covenant? I thought the kingdom was forever. And God did tear the kingdom from him. You see, as soon as Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is split. Now, there continues to be a Davidic ruler for the next 400 years that rules over Judah. But what we're going to see is ultimately, even Judah is taken into exile. And when Israel and Judah are brought back from exile, the king of, a Davidic king is not reestablished under the throne. And therefore, what we see in the Old Testament, and this tension is building, this question is, was that promise to David? And was that promise to Abraham about the, we, us, Israel, being a blessing to all the nations? Was that conditional? Have we lost the covenant because of our sinfulness? Or was it unconditional? And it builds throughout. And the prophets of Israel are going to come to the people over and over and over and again and say, you are being punished and you're being disciplined because you failed to keep covenant with God. But in the midst of all of these things, if you, for example, you just go, you got to read these major prophets in particular in large chunks. In fact, it'd almost be helpful just to simply outline because they're going to go this way. For like three or four chapters, the prophet is going to come to the people of Israel while they're in exile or while they're sinning big and he's going to say, God's going to punish you. God's going to discipline you. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to go really, really bad. And it's going to give you these awful descriptions of God's wrath for about three or four chapters. And then in the midst of that, there's going to be this chapter that is so stunningly beautiful in its hopefulness and about the love of God that it's going to blow your socks off. And you're going to go, What? You see, what we see in Isaiah, Isaiah follows that pattern, and yet what we see in Isaiah is over and over and over again, what the minor and the major prophets are going to say is God's going to discipline you, he's going to punish you, he's going to remove the kingdom from you, but there's going to be a king who's coming. He calls it the branch of Jesse. He's talking about in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9, in which there's going to be a servant of David, he says. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 5. And that servant, we're going to see, is talked about even more in chapters 40 to 54 of Isaiah and describes how this king will be and what things will be like when this king comes. And so on the one hand, we have this holy God who commands things of us, and if, if we disobey him, there's punishment and there's discipline. On the other hand, we have a loving God who is faith, supposed to be faithful to his own promises. So which is it? Do you understand this is a problem for us, but it's also a problem for God? God, how are you going to work out your covenants? How are you going to bring down your promise that you're going to curse us and remove us and discipline us and punish us 
us if we're unfaithful to the covenant, and yet at the same time, remain faithful to these promises about your steadfast love. How are you going to do this? And if you understand this tension, uh, the, whole, old, uh, the total uh, idea of the Old Testament is like this. It's like the first half of the movie that's all it's doing is building this tension. And so to the point, you feel like it's going to snap. But praise the Lord, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, breaks the tension in the very first verse of the New Testament. See, there are two covenants that the people of Israel look back on. The covenant with Abraham, in which God came to Abraham and said, I will make you a blessing to the nations. And there will be one, a child of your, a seed of yours, who will save the world. And he comes and he tells David, there will be one of your children who will be the king over Israel. He will reign for all of eternity. And Matthew chapter 1 begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ring, 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 ring. The tension, everything about the Old Testament is coming down to play. And you're supposed to say right here at the beginning, Matthew is laying down the four aces at the beginning of the hand. And he is saying, this is who he is, this is who he is, this is the one who is the answer to all the tension in the covenants. The promised heir of 2 Samuel is Jesus ultimately. It is Solomon, partially, but ultimately the one who will fulfill and bring to about all the, the promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is Jesus himself. He's the one who defeats death. He's the one who defeats sin. He's the one who will take on sin and the discipline, the scourging, and the stripes, and yet God's steadfast love will be seen through him. And he will reign for how long? Forever. Now here's the question. Let me see if we can get to the answers to this. Why are we not rejected when we disobey God's commandments? Why are we not rejected? Is God's covenant conditional or unconditional? I want you to see this. The love of God is is not unconditional. The covenant of God is not unconditional. It is very conditional. And yet the story of the Bible is this. All those ifs, all those ifs in the Old Testament, they are answered and satisfied and fulfilled in Jesus. 1,648 ifs. There's a reason Jesus didn't simply come to die on a cross, but there's a reason why he lived a life. It's because he came not just to die on a cross, but also to live the righteous life, to fulfill the ifs for you. Is there a conditionality for God's love for you? Absolutely. But yet, Jesus has fulfilled every single one of them. Therefore, the way you should talk about the covenants is this. Are they conditional or unconditional? You should say they are conditional, but the love of God is certain because Jesus has fulfilled all the conditions. Jesus meets the conditions. Therefore, therefore, if you're, some of you are trying to build a house for God with your righteous life, Jesus comes to you and says, no, 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 this is how it works. I build a, a, right, a righteous house for you, and I give it to you so that you're accepted in my sight, in God's Father's sight. And we come back to the promises. What are the promises to David in verses 9 through 15? They are stunning. We come back to the, God's covenant faithfulness David is going to die, but God's faithfulness continues on. Solomon dies, but God's covenant faithfulness doesn't stop. Death cannot stop God's covenant faithfulness. Jesus dies, and but instead, death is the means by which God brings his steadfast love to bear to us. David is going to sin. God's covenant faithfulness does not, does not stop. Solomon sins big. God's covenant faithfulness does not stop. So I want to bring this down to, to, for you in two ways this morning. Two things, two applications. The first one is still kind of bearing into this covenantal idea. 
but it's, it's a pastoral moment that we've got to figure out how to apply this. The first is this, your response to this and this kind of love, the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the conditions, is it should, it should call you, it should call you to unconditional covenant obedience. It should call you to unconditional covenant obedience. Some have tried to say this, I tried Christianity and it, re- it didn't work for me. And by that they mean that I tried to do the Christian thing and I was hoping that I was going to get out of it peace and a job or obedient children and they didn't get any of that and so in fact their life may have gotten worse. And so they say, God, that's it. I'm not going to do your whole law thing. I'm not going to do the church thing. I'm not going to try to obey you because you've done nothing for me. Understand this. That is not unconditional obedience. That is conditional obedience, right? That is, that is a mindset that says, if I obey, you give me a cookie. And God, I didn't get the cookie that I thought I wanted. And therefore, I'm not going to obey. That is conditional obedience. The call of God's covenant with us is unconditional obedience. That is obeying, obeying God without condition. God, it's not, God, I will love you if. God, I will obey you if. It is, God, I will obey you no matter what you ask of me. But you, you can do this only as you first understand. And you first understand that God has fulfilled all the requirements for you. Because here's, the, here's what you'll do. It's 1,648 ifs. The first time you break one of those and you continue to break one of those covenants, you're going to go, that's it, I give up. I give up. I can't do this. And you're going to give up and trying to seek out obedience. But when you see that God has fulfilled that obedience for you, now you can understand, I'm now not trying to earn his love. His love has been given to me through Christ Jesus. Now I simply respond to him in obedience, in unconditional obedience, because he has given me all the joy I need in Christ Jesus. Now this is a very important question, theologically and pastorally, for us in our lives. Because there are those of us who ask this question. If Jesus fulfills all the law, if Jesus does, it, does everything for me, why does it matter if I obey or disobey? In other words, does it really matter how I live? And I want you to see there are two types of way people look at the covenants, and not just even how they look at them, but how they, what they emphasize in the God's covenant with us. There are those, and we're going to talk about it in terms of volume. There are those who turn, up the vol, turn down the volume on the ifs. They look at God's law, and what they do because of the grace thing, they just kind of they just turn down the volume entirely on the ifs of God, all the commands of God. They say, God loves us no matter what, no matter what we do, no matter how we live. He won't discipline you. He won't punish you. He won't bring hard things into your life. The problem with that is you have to rip out about 90% of the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, they say the same thing, though. They say that what they're always pointing back to, in all of those prophecy books, they're pointing back to them and says, you have not been faithful to the covenants. You've not, you have not cared for the widow and the orphan. You have not cared for the immigrant in your midst. That was not optional. That was not optional. But I will be steadfast in my love. Now, but here's the thing. If you turn down the ifs, not only will you not understand the Old Testament, if you just say that there's a God, that he is a God who loves me and he'll accept me, but this will actually lead you to complacency in your life. You'll become as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, somebody who lives by cheap grace, it is disastrous to turn down the volumes on the ifs. You are called. You are called. God still holds you responsible to carry out His law. In the sense that by responsibility, I mean He calls you to live out His law for His glory and for your good and for the good of the world. But God will not allow us to turn down the ifs because He loves us too much. He loves us too much. It's a part of His covenant. 
right? If you love, you, you come to, I can come to you and say, man, do you love your kids? You have a covenant with your kids, right? How many of you have promised this to your kids and said this in a really sweet moment? It doesn't matter what you do, I will love you. I will be here with you. I will love you every, for the end of your days. It doesn't matter what you do. And some of you, oh my word, those words have hurt later on, haven't they? Because your child hurts you deeper than you can ever imagine. But let me ask you this. If your kid runs in the street, what are you going to do to their fanny? You will still discipline them. And you say, I thought you loved your kid. You go, uh, yes, I discipline them because I love them. I discipline them. Your child may defy you and they hurt themselves, but God loves you too much to make you, let you make a wreck of your life. Or if you do make a wreck of your life, not to call you back and discipline back to you himself. In just a couple chapters, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David makes a wreck of his life. And God disciplines him severely, doesn't he? Have you thought about the discipline God brought into David's life? He took his child away. That's, that's hard to swallow. Wait, God, I thought you were a God of grace. David, I love you too much to keep going down this path. I will hold you to my law. You cannot commit adultery and get away with it. I will discipline you, and I'll bring you back to myself because I love you. It's part of my steadfast love. But some of you, some, of, some people just want to turn up the volume on the ifs. Every time they look at the God's covenant with us, they look at all the, the, all the ifs, and they, say, talk, and they to begin talking about God's law in this way. They say, they talk about so much about the ifs, that if you don't obey God, then God will not love you. And more than that, not only will he not love you, he's going to get you. He's going to get you. If you obey God, though, he, then he'll love you. This is disastrous because this leads to works righteousness type of Christian life. This leads to the false idea that you can make God love you. Do you understand this is a pastoral issue and what you emphasize? Because there are many of us who believe, oh yes, yes, that steadfast love part of the covenant, but you so emphasize all the ifs all the time that no one can ever hear the steadfast love part of the, the, part of the covenant. If you failed, you feel cr- crushed and ashamed and depressed and it just wears you out because all your focus on the covenants is fulfilling the ifs. And so the people who like to turn up the yes, I want to remind you of this, that God's covenant love is certain. It is certain. It is conditional, but it is certain because of what Jesus did for us. Three times in verse 15, it uses a form of the verb sur in the Hebrew, which means to remove, to take away. And with this, what Yahweh is doing is he is building up a, a, a bottom at the bottomless pit of our sin. And he's saying, you will sin, the kings of Israel will sin, and they'll sin big, but my steadfast love is there at the bottom of the all. I will chasten David, I will chasten Solomon, I will chasten Israel, and I will chasten you, but at the end of it all, I will bring you back to myself because of my hesed, my covenant love. It suggests that God loves us just as we are in this. He loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. That's what his covenant does. The covenant is the context in which change actually happens in your life, in which you know love that is going nowhere. How do, you, how do you change? You need a context in which you're in a covenant with somebody who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is what marriage is. This is the high call of marriage, right? To have somebody, when you sin and you sin big, looks at you and says, I am going nowhere. And that, that is what motivates you to say, oh, oh then you can demand anything of me. He comes after you to make you holy. The second thing I want you to see as we close, I want you to see this, that because of the covenant, not only are you called to obey unconditionally, 
but you're also called to have joyous hope in the midst of discipline and darkness of this life. What will this God bring about? I want you to see this, that the Old Testament prophets, in the times in which they're proclaiming that God's people are going to be sent into exile, that God's discipline and punishment is going to be brought upon them. That God's wrath, in a way, is going to be brought upon them. That what they're going to constantly point back to, their hope in the midst of the darkest days in Israelite history, will be the Davidic promise. Will be the promise. And therefore, in those times of wondering, if God has abandoned his covenant with you, has God, and you're doubting God's covenant love for you, perhaps because he's brought some discipline into your life, or perhaps simply because you're in the midst of suffering, a simply immense of suffering. But what the prophets will point to over and over again is this covenant, and they'll say this, that the covenant has established with the house of David this promise, and they'll say, you can hope in the Lord even while you're in exile. They're going to do it over and over and over again. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 16, Isaiah 55, Jeremiah 23, 30, 33, Ezekiel 34, and 37, Hosea 3, Amos 9, and Zechariah 12, all point back to the Davidic covenant. And they all say you can have hope, that you can have hope even in the midst of the darkest time of Israelite history, even when God is punishing you for your sin, you can have hope. And it will point toward the promise of a king who will come and defeat sin and defeat death and defeat darkness. And you, you brothers and sisters, know that king. His name is Jesus. And he'll talk about how he's going to come and defeat the darkness of this world. Not just your sin, but also death. And he's going to enter into death itself. You see, he's going to talk about a king. You see in Isaiah 9, a king who will make peace. He's prince of peace and make everything right in this world. You see the longing of the people of Israel and the darkness and the discipline that they're under. You see, we have a world that is broken. It is terribly broken. We walked away from the covenant with God. We rejected it in so many ways. And therefore, because of that, car bombs go off outside of wedding celebrations in the Middle East. Young men shoot up elementary schools. And because of that, we have sex trafficking in this world. But there is a king who is coming, he says in Isaiah 9, who will fix all of this and will make it all new. That is the hope he points to in the midst of the darkest part of this world. Therefore, the man who, writes, who gets this covenant, the man who's going to sin and sin big, can also write Psalm 96 where he can hope even in the midst of a dark world. In Psalm 96, it says the trees will clap their hands and the trees and the, and the, the, the forest will sing. Now you look at that and you go, trees don't sing, they rustle. But that what he's pointing to is this, that we see the worship of God and the hope in the midst of the trees, that trees are trying to make a noise when maybe they are actually meant to sing. And if one day in God's eternal heaven that trees will sing, what will you do? And how beautiful that will be. And when this king comes, let me ask you this, how long will he reign? You've got to remember this in the midst of the darkness. In the momentary season of life, when things are hard and you're under God's discipline at times and life is just difficult, you have to remember this, that his reign will be forever. Forever. Not even we'll be able to, not time. Death won't stop this kingdom. Sin won't stop this kingdom. And time will never stop this king. It goes on forever and, fe- and forever. This is why George Frederick Handel, in his most famous hallelujah chorus, what does he say? And he shall reign forever. Ever and ever. The whole thing about Handel's Messiah is a buildup of Old Testament prophecy to this. And that's why the choir loses their ever-living mind. 
and says hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah in the midst of darkness and the midst of discipline, in the midst of these difficult days, we look for hope at the end of the covenant where it says God's steadfast will come to you in the form of a king who will set up his kingdom and it will be forever. Listen, one of the things that I've come to love and appreciate and end with this about my elders is one of the most difficult aspects of being an elder in God's church is you get to see the junk. And you get to feel the heartache. And you get to see the darkness that is here in this room with you people and with us. And week in and week out for the last couple of years, our elders have come face to face with marriages that are falling apart and people that are abused and people who are being threatened and people who are being sex trafficked and people who are um, being uh, sexually assaulted. And it is week in and week out. And we was asked, you have to ask this question. Here's what I love about my session. We still laugh. And we laugh a lot. Why? Because it's in the midst of the darkness of this world, even in the midst of God's church, we say we will laugh in the face of the darkness because we have a king who reigns, he reigns now, and he reigns for all of eternity. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your covenant. To be honest, Lord, we are people who don't understand it in so many ways. And perhaps I have created um, more confusion. (laughs) But Spirit of the living God, I pray that um, you would make um, your covenant clear to us. And make clear the character of our covenant God. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray as we come to understand what you have promised to us in the covenant, that we would be brought to awe and wonder as David was. Awe and wonder, God. Awe and wonder. Oh, Lord, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Convince us of your love once again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.